Welcome to Libya Matters. In today's episode, we talk about internally displaced persons. What does the term mean? Who does it protect? And what rights do internally displaced persons have? We also look at the causes of displacement and the particularities of the Libyan situation. We finish up with looking at what solutions there are to ease the suffering and to ensure the rights of those persons. With us to discuss this is Ms. Cecilia Jimenez Damari, a human rights lawyer with over two decades of experience as an advocate for human rights in the Asia-Pacific region, a leading expert in forced displacement and migration. Since November 2016, she has been the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons. She was the first Special Rapporteur to visit Libya since the conflict started in 2011. Enjoy the episode. So first of all, welcome, Cecilia. Thank you very much um, for this invitation and for this opportunity. Thank you. So, Cecilia, I think what we'll do is we'll start by explaining to our audience what what is the definition of a, of an IDP, and I think that because oftentimes we get a mixed a mixed terminology or mixed understanding of what an internally displaced person is and, and how is this person distinguished from a, a migrant, an economic migrant, or even a refugee. So if we could start just kind of giving an overview of, of the definitions and why this is significant. The definition of internally displaced persons have actually crystallized with the endorsement and adoption of the UN guiding principles on internal displacement. And under the guiding principles, there is a descriptive definition of an internally displaced person or an IDP. And basically it is a person or persons who have been forced. So there's an element of forced transfer or obliged for whatever reason. So a person or persons who have been forced or obliged to flee their homes or habitual places of residence. So they have to leave where they have been living, living in or even be habitual uh, places of residence. And the definition continues to provide a non-exhaustive, but but basically these are the major causes for such displacement, forcible displacement, we call it. And those would be either armed conflict or generalized violence or human rights violations of any kind. It can also be, the cause could also be a disaster, which may be caused by natural hazards uh, or because of man-made causes. Like uh, and 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 the latter would also include um, projects, for example, where the people are forced to leave. So the guiding principles provide this definition, but an important element of that is that the IDP or IDPs have not crossed an internationally recognized border. So, in other words, you have this person or group of people who have been forced to leave or obliged to leave their homes or habitual place of residence for any of the reasons I have enumerated. Um, And they have not crossed the border, meaning they have not become asylum seekers or they're not refugees or they are not international migrants. And this is very important because the moment that person crosses an international border, then 
the person does not uh, qualify at all anymore as an internally displaced person. So this definition is where we are always coming from. Of course, an IDP, you know, provided, of course, a definition is, uh, is uh, complied with in any of these elements, still has the right to seek asylum or to be a refugee elsewhere or even to become a migrant, you know, for reasons of freedom of movement. But then the last three refugees, asylum seekers and migrants would therefore cross the border. And then, therefore, they do not, they are not anymore internally displaced persons. That's really helpful to kind of understand it a little bit, because we we see so much of this conflating of terminology, whether it's by people on the ground or whether it's about the press of referring to internally displaced persons as refugees or um, as migrants. But maybe I'll ask a really kind of reaction, basic question. Why does it matter? It matters a lot. Because once a person crosses the border, there is a different regime that kicks in, meaning a legal regime. While an IDP or a person is still within the borders of the country, um, then the one who is responsible for that, the primary, the entity that has primary responsibility to protect that person is the state of that territory where he or she remains in. Once the person crosses the border, then obviously that person will go to the international arena or the international waters or, and of course, to another. So other countries would necessarily be involved in that responsibility. But an IDP remaining within the borders uh, within which he or she or they have been displaced it's really the state who is in power, or in the case of Libya, the de facto authorities that control the territory who have the primary responsibility to protect these people. And the international community, in this case, also has a subsidiary or complementary responsibility, but this is, in or- but this is not to substitute the state. So, and that's a very big difference. And the second difference is that at least for refugees and asylum seekers, once a person is a refugee or asylum seeker, you know, having crossed the border and is in another country or in an international, international waters, the international regime that kicks in is international refugee law. But this is very different from an IDP, an IDP that cannot benefit from the, um, the rights and the privileges under the International Refugee Convention, for example, the UN Convention. And, uh, and as well, the, um, the IDP remains within the domestic law of the country. However, it is important to recognize, nevertheless, that in both situations, both human rights law and international humanitarian law apply. So, and I think that was a very important commonality despite the differences of protection regimes. If we can zoom in on Libya in particular, you were the only special rapporteur to visit Libya. I was the first, but not the only one now, because a special rapporteur on migrants came later. 
in, during your visit in Libya, could you just uh, give us perhaps a briefing of what you've identified as the causes for um, displacement? As we all know, the context of the situation in Libya is very complicated, um, given the history uh, and, and the conflicts that Libya has suffered from and continue to suffer from. And as well, the, the, the fact that Libya is such a big country. And, uh, and this has become really a big factor because of the problems of accessibility. Now, the causes of internal displacement in Libya, you practically have most of it. The first one is, of course, armed conflict. And this is very, very clear for, um, for a lot of the situations because a lot of Libyans who were displaced during the time um, of the big, uh, the big war that you had there, okay, some of them were able to return, but a lot are still internally displaced. Then naturally you have a lot of other conflicts and some of these conflicts may not necessarily be um, state to non-state armed group conflicts but may also be conflicts among the non-state armed groups themselves. And this have created a general climate of insecurity and fear that Libyans have to leave their homes. Um, another cause is human rights violations. And the human rights violations that you can subscribe to many of the actors, including in territories controlled by de facto authorities or non-state armed groups are um, you know, violations. Most of them would be violations actually of international humanitarian law, but there is a conflation in these particular situations whereby because of the threat to themselves, to their physical security and safety and to the neighborhood and the community at large, again, people have to leave. There is, of course, also just the general conditions of violence. And uh, here we see a lot of that. For example, unfortunately, I wasn't able to visit the south of Libya, where a lot of these are happening because of the land conflict and the tribal conflict. Um, and may, you know, under international humanitarian law, they may not reach the threshold of armed conflict. Um, but some of them do. But what's important is that because of the violence, people have been forced to leave or obliged themselves to leave because they cannot see themselves or their families living in a place of insecurity. So I am afraid that the causes of internal displacement in Libya remains very dire and are not actually merely history. So I mentioned IDPs who have been uh, who 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 have been the the, the, the results who have fled their homes during the war, but I'm afraid that there are you know there have been continuing conflicts here and there in Libya that has mattered a lot to the people that um, they have to flee, and in fact I also know that since I left um, um, I, I conducted a visit to Libya 
there have been thousands more people who have been internally displaced in, inside Libya um, because of armed conflicts. For example, in Tripoli, in Derna, in Murzuk. And naturally, these have not been part of my, my, my report because this happened after the, the conduct of my visit. But again, these things are ongoing. This is not history. So aside from the legacy of the IDPs from before, you have current IDPs who, are, who have been displaced only very recently. So the, the, the situation is very severe in this case. And you cannot and you should not blame the people for seeking safety because this is part and parcel of human nature to seek a life of safety and security for yourself and for your loved ones. So I'm afraid that these are the causes of, of um, internal displacement from Libya, which are still very current. And frankly, I am really very concerned about the mainly the security situation in Libya, and secondly, the response of not only the, the state, but also the non-state um, armed groups who control pockets of territory, and as well as the international, the insufficiency of the assistance of the international community. But we can talk about that later. I think as I listen to you, one of the one of the thoughts that keeps just going in my head is saying, okay, so what we've distinguished early on in the definition is that what makes the situ what makes the legal situation of IDPs unique is that it's domestic law and it's the state that's responsibility that it's a state responsibility to the domestic situation. But then when we describe the reality of the situation in Libya, we acknowledge that there is really no state and a lot of this is caused by non-state actors. And I think for me that this is what makes the situation so depressing because the 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 people who are responsible for your safety if you're an internally displaced person are the people who actually don't really have the control or the power to change your situation as an internally displaced person and so in reality what does that mean for the regime of idps it it feels to me like all that we result with is a situation that is only going to get worse because those who control the de facto power are non-state actors, yet the responsibility sits with the states. So I guess my question is, how do you, is there a way to go for non-state actor responsibility in a situation like this? Very good question. And in, indeed, I agree with you. It is depressing. Uh, I was I, I was really shocked by the insecurity in Libya when I went there. And as we all know, this is also exacerbated by the economic situation um, of the people there. I did mention that aside from the state, where it matters, the non-state armed groups or the non-state entities also have responsibilities. And particularly, for example, in the East, many of the people from Benghazi have fled uh, the East because of the atrocities that have been uh, perpetrated by the, by, the, by the authorities there, the, the, the de facto or non-state armed groups there. Um, and and um, many of them have fled because of their lives. In fact, during my visit, 
when I went to visit Misrata, I met some of the families who had just arrived in Misrata because, for example, in one family, their brother, uh, um, you know, the brother was killed um, in one of the executions done by the non-state armed groups in Benghazi. And naturally, they felt unsafe. And so had, they had to flee their families. So you have real stories about this. And this is actually one reason why I was, I very much regret not having been able to speak to the non-state armed groups in Benghazi when I visited Benghazi. Up to the last minute, they had actually said they will accept my visit in the East. And then five minutes, or even within five minutes before the UN plane where we were in to go to, to schedule to go to Benghazi, we were stopped and Benghazi called and said, sorry, we have, we have problems. You cannot accept the UN special rapporteur anymore. And I thought that this was a lost opportunity, not only for the mandate, but for me to also listen and to, to discuss the issues with the non-state armed groups and very importantly, to see the situation firsthand and to listen to the people. I think in the end of the day, the, um, the responsibility of non-state armed groups or non-state entities um, under international humanitarian law for the protection of civilians is very much um, accepted by the international community. And IHL, International Humanitarian Law, provides very important guidelines on, distinct, on what we call distinction to distinguish those who are combatants and those who are civilians. But unfortunately, the IDPs whom I met are civilians um, I mean, in, in that case, that they were the ones who were, unfortunately, they were the ones who were being targeted for these violations, violations of IHL. And, uh, you know, we usually say human rights, but actually under IHL, it is not legitimate to target civilians for any atrocity. So even these non-state armed groups are under the responsibility under international law to, to protect, it's very obvious that um, this is not the case when it comes to, to the east of Libya. We know that um, in Tripoli, um, there has been some attacks on Tripoli uh, by, um, by these forces, by these non-state uh, armed groups. And the um, majority of the Benghazi IDPs and the attack on Tripoli has actually brought threats to their lives in Tripoli itself. And we know how the government of National Accord forces tried to defend the city of, of Tripoli. And, um, and it's really um, very distressing that the war has even reached, you know, this, this current um, state of the war has even reached the, the, you know, the doors of Tripoli itself. And we were informed, but I have no um, um, means to verify this, that part of the attack by the non-state armed groups were in order as well 
to um, seek revenge on the individuals who fled Benghazi. And, and so these things are going on. So definitely non-state armed groups, entities have responsibilities under international law. And particularly you rightly pointed out that the government is, has very um, limited means to counter this. And this is why they're putting a lot of their efforts on security. Unfortunately, on the other hand, sometimes the putting a lot of efforts on security does not necessarily include the protection of the civilians themselves. So we need to have all of these elements in place. Um, the GNA, you know, trying to assert their control of the territories where they are and to protect the people who are there. But at the same time, they do have the responsibility to protect those civilians. So the, the, these, these responsibilities, these are obligations under international law, obligations by the state and obligations by the non-state armed groups. One of the things that was highlighted here, I would um, like to make note of that you said, is the human rights um, displacement for human rights violations. I think that it is good to, to highlight this because when we think of internally displaced, we usually think of uh, those displaced um, for conflict reasons. So people who find themselves suddenly at the front lines of, of a conflict, they are then forced to evacuate their homes and seek shelter and safety elsewhere. But we tend to overlook, um, and, and this is very much the case today with the, with the conflict in Tripoli as in other areas in the South, um, and this has happened throughout. But I think that what one area that, like you uh, rightfully pointed out, that has been largely um overlooked is the the displacement of those in um uh those that have been forced to flee due to human rights violations either upon them or uh family members and fear of persecution has led them to seek um alternative um you know, homes in in other parts of uh, of the country uh, what I would like to also ask you about, Cecilia, is maybe the um, the numbers. And I think that there's, you know, I'm working on Libya for for so many years. There's always been a, a you know, the numbers or being able to identify the numbers of those displaced has always been somewhat contested. Although you would think that this should be very easy and very straightforward, but people have been displaced from this area seeking shelter uh, in another uh, part of the country but and I don't know if if this is something that that you came across but one of the things that we've you know we've heard over the years is that those people for example some Masratans that were living in Benghazi um, and had been living there for for generations and, and really had no real link to Misrata other than or originally their uh, generations back, that is where they are from, uh, were, were forced to flee Benghazi, moved uh, and, and to and displaced in, in, to Misrata, but then were not considered as IDPs, were in fact considered as of they've returned to their, um, to their homes. 
And, and this obviously becomes a, a politicization of the numbers uh, of the, of, and of the situation itself. Remember that the definition of who is an internally displaced person says that they have been forced to leave their homes or habitual places of residence. And definitely a lot of those who fled Benghazi and had to go back to, uh, into, into the homes of their forefathers, they are IDPs because some of them, I mean, a good number of them, in fact, have never even lived in Misrata before because they have grown up, they have studied, they were born even in, in Benghazi. So again, we go back to the definition of what is a home, okay, the home, but also they fled a habitual place of residence. In fact, even a foreigner can become an IDP within a certain country. Let me give you the example of South Africa, where many of the migrants from other African countries were displaced by violence. And so they had to flee where they were living as migrants. This, they are also IDPs, even though they're not necessarily citizens of the country, but they have been living in a particular country for that, you know, for, for some time, even as migrants not even for the generations that you have just elaborated on. So we go back to the definition, and the definition for me, it's very clear that those who have fled Misrata, uh, I'm sorry, fled Benghazi, and then went to Misrata are IDPs. This is very clear. And, uh, and um, in, in the end of the day, it's a definition that really, the, the descriptive definition that really controls who we are talking about. And so you ask me about numbers. And the numbers are, in fact, as you say, very contested. When I went to Libya the first time, I was informed that around 1% to 3% of the population of Libya are IDPs. When I left, I was convinced it was more. The problem with counting IDPs, so to speak, is that it's not so much merely the ex it's not so much the exact number that you need, but what we need is really an estimate of um, how many families have fled and are are in certain um, places of refuge. For example, we have the um, the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, um, estimated that there were 20, around 24,000 families who were displaced since uh, on, on April 4 this year. So, of course, you know, you may have exact numbers for the paper, but the point is that 24,000 families is a big lot of families. It's, it's a big number of people. That's almost 120,000 people. And that's only with regard to one particular, to, to the start of the attacks by the, by the forces loyal to, to Haftar um, earlier this year. And the second important thing as well is to know what are the conditions of these families. One difficulty is the fact that some IDPs actually are not in evacuation centers or camps, what we call IDP camps. 
a lot of them actually go and find refuge with their families or friends. A lot of them, and this is the case in Libya, also go and rent accommodations on their own, you know, depending on how much money they have. So, and actually the last two sets of people, those who are living with families or, 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 or houses of other people or those who are in rented accommodation, these are the people who have not been reached by international assistance or even recognition as IDPs. So you have these two sets of people, those whose um, residence or habitual places of residence are contested, and, and so they're not recognized as IDPs. And second, what we call the people, the IDPs who are out of camp IDPs. Actually, the situation in, um, in Libya is even more complicated because we have people also from, for example, from the South who have fled the South, went to other places of Libya in order to find um, security. And they may not have fled necessarily through armed conflict. So, but they may have fled because of insecurity, tribal wars, land conflicts, etc., which again may not be recognized. So not recognizing IDPs based on the definition, be it habitual place of residence or causes or because they're out of camps, this is actually a big problem on Libya. It is important to recognize IDPs as an IDP. And if we will restrict the definition of an IDP, you will actually leave hundreds and thousands of people out of the equation who are in dire need for protection from the state as well as from the international community assistance. So you're quite right. You know, data is, of course, important. And this is one priority of my mandate, actually. But it is important to advocate for the recognition of IDPs based on the descriptive definition that I provided to you earlier on. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. Just thinking about that. So we've talked in in detail about why it matters to have a clear definition, how the definition can be manipulated, what the different elements are, the categories, the causes. But let's take that a step forward. So we now have established that a person is an IDP, an internally displaced person. What rights does that give them? The rights of an IDP are basically the same rights as any other citizen of the country concerned. And this is why I also pointed out in my report that while I recognize the extreme social insecurity, the economic difficulty of the general Libyan population under the current, in the current situation, it is important that the human rights are of, of one, the IDPs themselves are recognized as human rights like everybody else. And secondly, that the IDPs also have rights to particular protection 
because of their displacement. Let me um, give you examples. With regard to the first category, where I, Libyan IDPs have exactly the same rights as other non-displaced Libyan. I was informed very, very um, emphatically that many of the rights of the IDPs, because they are IDPs, are not recognized. And this is due to discrimination. And of course, it is also due to persecution. The mere fact, for example, that they had difficulties in opening bank accounts, for example, because they come from a different um, part of the country. I mean, this kind of right is being denied to them, which is a right that is not being denied to non-displaced Libyans. It's being denied to the IDPs because of their displacement. So the issue of discrimination can be very high in many of the displacement situations. And this is not just in Libya. This is all over the world. And this is a very, very basic human rights uh, prohibition, the prohibition of discrimination based on the status as, as an IDP. Um, you cannot discriminate against an IDP because of the displacement. One thing, for example, that I was very happy about is that the kids, for example, I went to the Tawerga Center and I was assured that the children are go were going to school like any Libyan, non-displaced Libyan kid. This was at the time of my visit. So, and that should be the same model for all the rights of Libyan IDPs, that they have the same rights as non-displaced IDPs. Now, the second point I would like to make is because of their displacement, however, in addition to non-discrimination of human rights, IDPs are also um, entitled to special protection because of their displacement. And one particular issue that has uh, come out very clearly during my visit to Libya, and I have cited this in my report, and in fact, in my end of mission statement, is the fact that IDPs, because of what they have gone through, suffer a lot from trauma. And this trauma is not experienced by non-displaced Libyans. And, um, and this has got to be uh, tended to as much as possible. And, and maybe the state may not have the resources to do so, but it can set up, cannot, can set up conditions whereby the social workers and the psychologists from among the displaced communities themselves can tend to the trauma of the other displaced within the community. So it doesn't always have to be, you know, the state doing it, but the important thing is they take responsibility for it and try to set up that condition, those conditions that will facilitate such protection for IDPs. So, IDPs have a lot of rights as common citizens, and they have additional rights to protection. This is my message to you. And that's really um, that's really helpful. Although I th I think you probably received an edited version of the Tawara experience, unfortunately, because a lot of the cases we documented um, reflect. I mean, education is a real issue, and what we also found um, is that 
often the, the children are have access to education, but actually it's not state education and they have to fi- raise funds to have private education. So I, I think I would uh, qu- query how, how rosy the picture is in the, in the camps for, for some of those children. Because, uh, I, I mean, we've seen a lot of cases where what, when the, you know, when the GNA, whoever is, is telling you that they do have access to education, what they're missing is that, well, most of it has to be private because they are struggling to register into the state system. And so it is out of pocket and for a lot of, and, and that is plain discrimination because other children would be entitled to the state education. Um, and also I think the, a lot of the people we've seen displaced in Libya have a double discrimination, sort of a discrimination for having been displaced, but also discrimination based on where they were displaced from and the political perceptions there or on the color of their skin. Um, and, you know, some of the examples you gave from the South, um, for historical reasons, many of the taboo in the South are not, are undocumented. And so they already, they already suffer discrimination and then it's kind of multiplied as a result of being uh, internally displaced. And so I think there is quite a, quite a lot of layers that I, I wish we had more time to, to explore that bring a, to bring quite a bit of nuance to the, to the situation. Well, I would like to add um, as well that um, we were talking about non-recognition of IDPs a while ago. And this is, in many, many cases, the non-recognition of IDPs is sometimes self-imposed by the IDPs themselves, precisely because they are discriminated against. So this shouldn't be the case um, because recognition of IDPs is important by itself and the prohibition of discrimination is very clearly set out in international human rights law. And if you have people, IDPs, who feel they don't want to um, avail of special protection because they know they'll be discriminated against. And the special protection is probably, well, first of all, it may not be existing, but it may, you know, but there may be this double or triple discrimination, not only because they're IDPs, as you said, because of where they come from. Some, I mean, a good number of them, some of them, a good number of them I have spoken to said, we don't want to declare ourselves as IDPs. And naturally you also have the issue of security. So, which pertain to many IDPs, even though they have already left the place of insecurity that they have fled from. So, um, and the, the, this latter phenomenon is, is not unique to Libya. There are other places where because of this discrimination, the people would rather not, you know, say or try to even avail of any protection or assistance because they're an IDP because precisely of this discrimination that they suffer. I mean, I think it, it almost is only acceptable for cases that are undisputed. You know, so if you're from the Tawarga situation, people have accepted that, understood it. It's very clear cut. It's non, you know, it's non-disputable. An entire town was displaced. But I think on the more nuanced examples, like the Masrata example that Marwa gave and others, I don't think people are sometimes are unaware that they are internally displaced, actually, because they're they're part of that same narrative. Or there is this kind of, or or for the example you gave of people who can self fund their movement, they feel that they're in a almost privileged position that they can do that, and therefore they don't identify 
as people who need extra protection or who benefit from this status. So I think there's a lot to be done on on actually just in giving the power to the words that a way that's not been that's not been done um, sufficiently. I wonder if I'm conscious of time of we of whether we want to think slightly positively <laughs> and move towards thinking of solutions for what we've described as quite a dire situation. Well, I would like to end uh, this um, conversation on a positive note. And one positive um, issue element that I would like to emphasize is that the people of Libya does have, do have resources themselves, inside themselves, um, to to not only survive, but to be articulate and um, advocate for their rights. It is important that the IDPs themselves and the society and NGOs like you continue to you know, raise awareness of the situation, advocate for human rights, because this is something that is necessary. And without this, there is no hope. So this is really a main message that I would like to, to well, to commend uh, the Libyan people. Um, but also, uh, it is important to acknowledge that the government of National Accord has very has very limited authority. You pointed this out earlier, or uh, powers, and and I think that where they can be helped, I think this is this is necessary as well, and not just the Libyan people, but I also speak about the international community. But having said that. The government of National Accord, you know, they have recognized there's a problem of displacement. Earlier on, they set up this ministry, bravo, but it does not have enough resources, no, hardly any strategy. Um, and I think that political will that we have to recognize uh, in the Libyan government, in the GNA, of having set up this ministry and therefore recognize the, the, the problem or the, the situation, I think that has to be scaled up, scaled up considerably. And I have said again um, from my uh, report, and I still reiterate that the situation of internally displaced persons in any country, and especially in a country like Libya, is, you know, should be responded to by a whole of government approach with the Ministry of Displacement as being in the center of facilitating this whole of government approach and whole, whole of society approach. So I, I know we're trying to be positive here, but if you have to temper a little bit your optimism and excitement about the the GNA's ability to um, to do very much. And that's not, and, and I feel that actually there's a danger in empowering incompetence if we continue to always justify their incompetence by what appears to be their goodwill. But, but in the end of the day, them setting up a, a ministry and creating more bureaucracy and, and more people who are on the public payroll with zero discernible outcomes is actually part of the problem and not the solution in, in my mind. Um, I don't know if you... Um, want to comment on that, but I think one of the things that the international community 
does a lot with the GNA is constantly explain away its failures. And so um, I saying, oh, well, you know, they, they have the will to do this, but they don't have the resources or they are unable is actually the language we now hear from them back to us as civil society when we call on them to exercise their responsibilities and obligation as a state is that they almost bask in the glory of being a failed state and in saying, oh, but we can't do it. And the international community says we can't do this. And they acknowledge that we can't do this. And don't, don't get me wrong, though. I said the political will to have set up the ministry. And this is why I'm saying they have to scale up. Because yeah. if they do not scale up, this is what you are talking about, the incompetence. This scaling up that is needed to by the government and I'm not justifying their failures. What I said is that we have to acknowledge that initial political will, that they have recognized there is a problem and they set up this ministry, but that is not enough. And what I'm saying is a whole of government approach. They need to do this. And if you do not have the political will to do this, then you will only have a marginalized little ministry doing things here and there that does not have any impact. In my own analysis and the analysis of my, pre of my predecessors, it is important to have a focal point in the government that will be facilitating the, um, the response to displacement, to internal displacement. It does not mean that that ministry will do everything. In fact, my predecessor even wrote uh, one of his reports, uh, Professor Biani, just on governance of internal displacement. And one of his recommendations is, is to have a focal point, a ministry, for example, which is one of the forms, which Libya has. But this ministry that Libya has is not up to the task. I have to be very frank with you. And this is, we're saying the same things. And, it has to be a whole of government approach, as I was saying, whereby the government, for example, you know, health or education, you have a ministry of health, you have a ministry of education, but it is up to the ministry of the displaced people to facilitate the IDPs accessing, you know, the rights, for example, to right to education. This is how it should be. But the problem right now is that it's just a little ministry. And you will not get anywhere with, with a ministry that does not have the authority, does not have the budget, and importantly, does not lead the protection, the recognition and protection of internally displaced persons in the country. That is absent, totally absent from what I have seen and from what I see. And it is important to go back to my recommendations and it is still very valid that the government, because it has already had some political will in the beginning to upscale that, to have a comprehensive roadmap on the protection of internally displaced persons, to have a strategy. And you have many countries whereby this is already being done and and they suffer as well, not just from, you know, some current displacement, but from protracted displacement. You know, you have situations like what's similar to Tawerga. But they have managed because 
they have upscaled their um, their work. Um, for I, I can just cite one example, which is in Europe, Ukraine. They have a ministry where which facilitates a lot of the of the IDP situations. They have very good budget. They have recognition from the from the society, and they and us importantly, they are trusted by the internally displaced persons. So what I'm saying is that. Libya still has a long way to go. Now, during the last um, session of the UN Human Rights Council, uh, the delegation of Libya stated their appreciation again for my visit, uh, but you know, we cannot, and, uh, and, and actually ask for, um, uh, for, for um, assistance. And in, in my view, the assistance I have provided in terms of recommendations in my reports are there. Mm -hmm. And my mandate remains at the disposal of Libya for particularly for um, enabling a comprehensive, a comprehensive, not just a not just an ad hoc project-based condition, you know, context to context, um, IDP protection, a comprehensive strategy. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree that there has, there is a a, um, a need for a comprehensive strategy, and, and I think that Libya um, needs a, compre a comprehensive strategy on so many uh, different fronts as well. But I just, as we, you know, conscious of time, I just wanted to, and and our our wanting of of kind of ending on on a uh, a more positive note, is to ask. What would solutions? What are what do the solutions look like for um, for IDPs? We do speak of of durable solutions. We um, we have, you know, we see those that um, that flee due to conflict and then return once the the conflict subsides. Um, but then we also see more protracted, long term situations um, where people have been displaced for years now. So what do these solutions look like um, in the context of, of those that are uh, in, displaced internally? And just to what I, because of the narratives that we hear oftentimes of, uh, well, they're Libyan, you know, they don't, they can go anywhere. It's, it, and, and so I think that when we do talk about uh, those who are displaced and, we want to find a durable solution for them. What would that be or entail? I think it's important to start from the basics. And that is for the intern internally displaced persons themselves to have a voice in the decision-making of the governments, of the NGOs, of the international community's responses to their situation. I'm afraid that a lot, and again, Libya is not, uh, unique in this, that a lot of the solutions are imposed on them, okay? And in fact, my report to the General Assembly in 2017 was precisely on IDP participation, that they are part and parcel of the solutions themselves. It is also important, secondly, to recognize that the right to return does not, the, uh, sorry, that the right to local integration, for example, which is 
really a big problem right now in, in Libya, does not cancel out the right to return. Um, Georgia, for example. Um, in Georgia, a lot of IDPs cannot return. And so what the government has been trying to do is to allow them conditions for local integration. But then it does not mean that they will not have the right to return. Because while you have no right to return, you have to continue your lives. The, chil the children have to go to school. You get sick. You have to go to, uh, to the hospital. And, you know, all of these things. And you have to have your livelihood. So durable solutions is not just a one thing, a stop thing, or it's just a right to return. You can have settlement elsewhere. And yes, you can have local integration. But it's not just because they can do that that the government will just wash off their hands. The obligation of the state for durable solutions cover all three movements, the settlement elsewhere, the local integration, and the right to return where it's possible. A lot can be done by that. So um, the solutions that we are looking for is first and foremost, what do the people themselves want to do right now in terms of where they are not you know and not negating the right to return but secondly of course what should the government how should the government respond to those demands of the idps um, it is important that in terms of durable solutions the criteria for durable solutions are respected the Tawergans, for example, they were going to return to places of non-safety and insecurity. And I had already pointed that out when I was in Libya, because this was a time that they were going home. And I think it's great to go home and people wanted to go home. But how can you go home to places of insecurity? This is not a durable solution. So what I'm saying, is that solutions to displacement is not just the movement, but it's also the conditions based on criteria of human rights, which are safety and security, access to livelihood, access to housing, land and property, et cetera, et cetera. These are gargantuan tasks, but again, if you do not have a vision <laughs> to go to that, you know, to that direction, I'm afraid everything will just be uh, ad hoc and knee-jerk uh, reaction to the situation at hand. Hi, this is Marwa Mohammed again, and welcome to LFJL Explains. Today, I'm going to explain internally displaced persons, or IDPs. Libya over the years has seen thousands of displaced due to the conflict, insecurity, and targeted attacks against individuals that has forced them to leave their homes and search for safety and security in other parts of the country. In fact, two key elements that defines an IDP is that they, one, have been forced to flee their homes, meaning their movement was not voluntary, and two, they remain within the territory of the state, meaning they have not crossed international borders that would otherwise make them refugees. An IDP is defined as a person who has been forced to flee due to armed conflict, generalized violence, or violations of their human rights, and who have not crossed international borders. This definition is stipulated in the 1998 Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement. It is the authority governing the IDP situation. 
IDPs is not a legal status, as they remain entitled to all their rights and guarantees as citizens or residents of their country. As such, the government has a primary responsibility to not only prevent forced displacement, but to protect those that have been forced to displace. In Libya today, there are over 400,000 IDPs throughout the country. While these numbers fluctuate, it is always an indication of the ongoing conflicts in the country. While many have in fact returned once the conflict subsides, there are still many who remain displaced as far back as 2011, waiting to return to their home. So there is a segment in the podcast that we like to do because the whole purpose of the podcast is to change the narrative on Libya and bring nuance to it. So it, we call the segment Debunking the Narrative. It's it's super quick. It's kind of a, a really quick round where I will make a statement, a very general statement about Libya that we would like you to debunk, but in sort of one sentence response, if that's possible. So here we go. Are you ready? Most people in Libya voluntarily move and privately fund. They are not displaced. An internally displaced person is forced to leave or is obliged to leave. And that is not voluntary, despite the fact that they may fund their own displacement. That's great. <laughs> that was very conclusive. Uh, I've got one more I'm for you. I'm sorry, but this, this is very important for people to understand. Just because they fund their own movement does not mean they are not internally displaced. Definitely. And I think that's one of the, for me, that's one of the biggest problems with the narrative. I've got one more for you. They don't want to go back. They can if they want to. A lot of people want to go back to where they come from. But on the other hand, even if they cannot go back, they still have rights to um, locally integrate as internally displaced persons in places they have found refuge. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tarek Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fetcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyanu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. 